This is The Final Word Storytime with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, the version of The Final Word where we don't talk about the issues of the week, we don't talk about matches that are happening, we talk about the issues of the 1890s, <laughs> and we talk about matches that have happened in the 1890s. <laughs> the, the show where we go back in time, back through cricket history, there's a lot of it and we've been all around it and there is still so much more that we have not yet discovered. Adam, you may be interested to know, I'm, I'm in Melbourne, you're in uh, Birmingham, and it is a wild night here. It's one of those, like, really spooky. The wind is howling in the trees. It's been love it. hammering rain for the past couple of days. The creeks are all at the point of overflowing. I'm going to have a whiskey while we do the show. It's that kind of <laughs> night. It's, it's, it's absolutely freezing and awful outside. Um, but here we are inside, warmed by the glow of cricket. At least it's not the milk round. We got a message from Steve Pritchard on our Twitter feeds uh, before saying that mm-hmm. his boss loves the show he's got his boss into it and he would become a patron mm-hmm. if only we scrapped the milk round to which i had to say you win some you lose some if our, if our hard and tireless work on the final word isn't <laughs> enough to get you over the line but the fact that we talk about milk occasionally is that's just the cross we're going to have to bear unfortunately well i mean imagine the, the sort of deal with the devil kind of you know like jimmy goes down to the crossroads in georgia and and trades with the devil to teach him how to play blues guitar imagine that deal where the devil says you can have all the success all the fame all the money in the world but you can never drink flavored milk again (laughs) i think we know which way i think we know which way our decisions are going yeah that's right i think there was a caveat there that also if we did a weekly segment on mo and ali it would be sufficient to uh, Mm -hmm. get uh, the aforementioned boss to to join but i mean i'd love to do i'd love to do a mo and ali segment per week but Uh he's just not sort of playing the sort of cricket or much cricket at all that would sort of warrant it. I don't know what we would fill it with. Could we do some sort of crossover in which (laughs) Moeen becomes the big M? (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is the natural trajectory of this segment, I think. (laughs) <laughs> this this can, there's got to be a way to make that work, right? Surely he's he is the big M, and we you know maybe Mo is a big milk fan. We don't know. No we, one's asked him. When no one asks the big questions in the press conferences, when's the last time someone said Moeen, Blue Heaven? How do you feel about it? It's a natural endpoint. I mean, I suppose this show goes up on Fridays, and one of the public policy positions that Dylan Leach and I drafted many years ago when we were launching a Dylan for Victoria campaign was that we'd have free Big M's for every school student in Victoria, <laughs> Big M Fridays. Mm-hmm. So if this might be the, the way yeah. the whole thing... It's at last might be the, the catalyst for it. And tell me there's not an easy, an absolute golden opportunity marketing crossover where... England's best cricket moment, bar none, particularly in terms of images, is 2019 World Cup final. The England players at the end, all their celebrations, Josh Butler throwing the gloves in the air. What are they wearing? Baby blue, baby blue shirts. <laughs> Get that on the Blue Heaven poster. Just have the big the big lettering that says Blue Heaven with the picture of Josh throwing the gloves up. You will sell megalitres of the stuff. Big M. You will need tankers. You'll be pulling them up outside of, like, every McDonald's in, in the UK that has a broken milkshake machine, you could be pulling up a tanker full of Big M Blue Heaven with Joss Butler on the side and just be just be pouring it into people's cars. Like, the, the demand would go through the roof. Think <laughs> laterally about this. I like how we're balancing our commercial risk at the moment. We have the Oak 
on the show on the mm-hmm. weekly edition a couple of days ago. Now we're talking about the Big M, neither of whom sponsor us, by the way, but we're very open to offers. As we say all along, if only one of them would respond to our emails, they could have themselves yeah. a neat relationship with the final word, you know. Yeah, or, you know, if you're nippies, if you're out there, love the honeycomb stuff in a box, like, who doesn't? <laughs> um, you know, master spearmint, like, the, the, you can have our number, like, drop us a line. Let's get fresh. Um, now, I mentioned that you're in Birmingham. You're at the Bastion of Edges, um, Edge Bastion, where you're going to be doing a radio broadcast back to New Zealand. I am. It's that day before, you know the feeling, Jeff, and we've made broadcasts before, the day before the test match, you are shitting yourself. I mean, we've done all the line tests and most of the equipment's where it should be and the hard work's been done. All we need to do is now talk about the cricket for five days, but still there's that that sinking feeling in the pit of your stomach that Mm. I can't wait for tomorrow morning to arrive and any residual nerves to leave my body. But no, it's lovely here. It's a glorious day in Birmingham. It's going to be five really nice days as far as weather is concerned. And and yeah, the, uh, the launch of this new station in New Zealand, so it's exciting to be part of something new. This is part of our interesting time travel stuff in that by the time people are listening to this, it'll be like day three of the test yes. match. And <laughs> either your broadcast will have been successful or it will have been a dramatic failure, <laughs> um, one or the other. <laughs> but, but right now, you're still nervous for the purposes of the exercise. That's what we do on this show. We travel through time. We do. We're recording this on Wednesday, so the day before the test match. Jeff, lots of intro there today. I think it's time for the reason that we've come together. Time for a little game that we call Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. Uh, it's a game that is a it's a back and forth between us and the people who listen to the show. Some of whom decide that they want to support the show. They want to help us make the time to make the show, and so they send in financial contributions for whatever scope they like. But those things they don't come in like a regular sort of currency format. It's not a five dollar note or a two dollar coin. It's a very specific number. It's a very specific amount of big currency and small currency with a decimal point in it, and the number relates to cricket in some way. And we have to guess what it is, and in doing so, we tell the stories that make up story time. This is how it works. The first one is a double header. It's $4.11, and it's coming in from a couple of listeners who we know well. Yes, two familiar names, Tim Minchin and Rory Seymour, four eleven. And, Jeff, you're going to take on Tim's that comes with a clue. Mm-hmm. It reads as follows. Not that Tim Minchin. Not that Tim Minchin, of course. Not that Tim Minchin. The other Tim Minchin. One of the other Tim mm-hmm. Minchins. He mm-hmm. says, the real number is 41162. Go on, then. Mm. 41162. That's um, it's very specific. It's, uh, there's something about the five digits that always brings to mind... 24601, you know, from uh, the the number that's tattooed on Jean Valjean in Les Mis, <laughs> which I never bring up. I never bring up Les Miserables on the show. I don't know why. I've just never mentioned it before. But <laughs> for some reason, when I read 41162, I just, I just imagined, you know, the big dramatic courtroom scene, ripping the shirt open and showing off the tattoo, but that not to be. So does this mean 41,162? It, it might, because when I first saw it, I thought, I'm pretty sure that's a number of first-class runs that somebody made. It looked very familiar, 41162. And it almost was because Graham Hick made 41112. Oh, 50 away. So close. Yeah, 50 short. Came very, very close. And it was interesting looking at that list as well, Adam, that he's there are 16 players who made over 40,000 first-class runs. He's by far and away the most recent. Most of them are pre-World War II even. And 
Every single one of them is English. They all played Test cricket for England, all 16 of them, because of just the sheer volume of county cricket, first-class cricket that gets played in England, I suppose. Yeah, didn't we have a couple of weeks ago, did Brian Close come within 20-odd runs or something like that in his last innings? Yeah. He gave himself out, caught down the leg side, and Wilfred Rhodes is the other who came within a hair's breadth of hitting that barrier. But yeah, it's... Uh, I doubt anyone will get there again, 41,000 mm. or 40,000 first-class runs. I mean, given yeah. how much first-class cricket Graham Hick played before he was an international cricketer, back in the days of three-day cricket and so on, uh, it feels like the hundred hundreds in that it's a barrier that, you know, <laughs> th- 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 that was important and very significant generations ago, but one that's outside of reach now. Given that Brian Close was playing that innings like down at the corner park against a bunch of 13-year-olds, <laughs> it's probably fair enough that he gave himself out, caught down the leg side. He made a thousand. Like, no, but I- <laughs> he made a thousand any, and six any, at the time. <laughs> any game that he... <laughs> <laughs> Pranav Close. Um, yeah, Brian Close was the name of the street where the park was, where he was playing this game. I was actually having a, uh, having a conversation with David Lloyd Bumble about this a couple of weeks ago. I was asking him about mm-hmm. those games at Scarborough that were played, uh, the Brian Close or the DB Close 11s, and he, he played in one of them. I think there were five of them between about 1979 yep. and 1986, which was the final one against New Zealand, and he said it was the best week of the year. It was the Scarborough Mm. Festival. There would be a very strong team fielded by Brian Close, including a bunch of international players, as we went through a few weeks ago. And, yeah, the game he played in, he said it was brilliant, and basically they were just on the tonk for three nights, giving it it big. Must be partly why Ken Rutherford went out to make a triple ton and slept for the entire lunch break, as we learnt on that storytime tale. (laughs) But, yeah, he essentially corroborated the idea that, yes, Mm. it was a festival game, but, but also that some pretty good, pretty good players turned out. Yeah, but, you know, they were all getting wasted for the entire time. So yes. As long as Brian Close was in the team, it got first-class <laughs> status. You know, that's you know, if he'd played World Series cricket, we would have no problem getting first-class <laughs> status for those games. Feels about right. So, 41162, that's what we're looking for, right? And So, it's not the 41112 of Graham Hick. It's not balls bowled in a test career because Murley ended up over 44,000 and El Cumble was just a bit short 40,850 so Slacker. 50 odd short yeah should have bowled a few more overs Anil not the most balls faced in tests Stravid was a bit over 31,000 there 41162 very close with Alan Turner who averaged 41.166 oh. The last of the five decimals got away from me. How did you work that out? Cricket How did you do that? By uh, dividing his number of innings by his runs rather than looking at it on a database. So, so you, you, you went through, you didn't, did you find a way of automating that that every player's average was calculated to three decimal points? No, no. I, I looked for players who were close to that oh, and, then, okay, okay. and then calculated them by hand to find out what the decimal string was because, you know, those are the things I do with my time. Uh, <laughs> so, so 41162 we're looking for. Alan Turner, 41166, so close. He only played six ODIs, but played in the first World Cup in 1975. Mm. Left-handed opener, smashed a pretty quick 100 against Sri Lanka during one of the qualifying games. Second top scorer in the final, made 40 again in pretty quick time in the final. <laughs> Quite humorously went on to become a high-ranking uh, chap at Benson and Hedges just before they sponsored everything in cricket during the 80s and 90s. You know, get a couple of Gaspers down you. <laughs> get a pack of B&H down you. Good for the health. Garn. You know, oh, you always steal me fucking lies. I, I love the fact that I love the fact that when you see some former cricketers who smoke, they still smoke Benson and Hedges. One well well documented former yep. cricketer who still is loyal to the brand all these years later. Fantastic. <laughs>
Well, I suppose you want to know who to bring the lawsuit against, right? Like there's, <laughs> there's no point bringing other other players into the mix at that point. So, not quite Alan Turner. Now, I did think, could it be one of those freaky averages like the, you know, Adam Voges averaging 540 against the West Indies? 411.62, though, means that you'd have to it would have to be divided by 50 in order to get up to a whole number so it'd have to be something divided by 50 which would mean the lowest number you could be dividing would be 20,581 <laughs> i don't i just don't think there's anything that would fit there you you can't have an anomalous average that requires being divided by 50 you know an anomalous average gets divided by 3 or 4 right, um, right. not by 50 otherwise it it comes back to the mean so that doesn't scan but you may be interested to know adam we've been talking a bit about the growth of cricket in the USA 41162 if you wanted to get yourself a job teaching people how to play cricket over there while I was looking up the human resources website Zip Recruiter the average salary for a cricket coach in the USA is $41,162 well I hope it's right I hope it's right and if it's not it's a lovely coincidence Tim, give me a clue. <laughs> I need a clue. <laughs> give me a hint in the DMs. Help me out. Speaking of niche, that's where Rory was going, according to his clue anyway. Mm-hmm. Something more niche and more of a challenge. Well, there's a number of ways we could do this, but mm-hmm. I'm going to do it as follows. So, um, Len Coldwell uh, was a seamer who played seven test matches in the 60s and took 22 wickets, and he's a Worcestershire legend. Mm-hmm. So, I could tell you all about Len and run the dusty old bastard music over the top. However, I feel mm-hmm. like once we're into the 60s, even the 50s, I think even like post-World mm-hmm. War II, they're not quite DOB-ish wow. enough for me. I know they're new You're not going to do it. I don't y- think you're so. You're not going to do it. You've got an opportunity to DOB and you're saying, this is incredible restraint from you. I've got a shoulder arm. So I feel as though if they've played in the era of, say, television, then it's mm-hmm. not so dusty for me. So okay. uh, thanks, Len Coldwell, for your contribution, but you're not going to get talked about on the show today. Nor are you, South Africa, uh, for the 411 you made against Ireland at Monica in the 2015 World Cup, one <laughs> of many 400 scores in that tournament. Another crazy one-day international just on the way through to my actual story was in 2009 where India made 414 and Sri Lanka replied with 411 for eight. Saywag 146 Oof. for the winners, Dilshan 160 for the losers. Uh, where, again, that was, I suppose, the second one-day international yeah. where both teams made in excess of 400 runs. He's got a gig in suburban Melbourne. He does. Yeah, well, there's been two gigs recently. So Dilshan was playing for South Melbourne during the summer, uh, which Damien Fleming was very excited about. And he's, according to reports, he's been able to get a job for his old mate, Sanat Jayasuriya, who's going to be coaching, captain coaching, I think, Mulgrave next year. We used to have a little bit to do with Mulgrave uh, many, many, many years ago with my club at Endeavour Hills. So they're a good, strong club, Mulgrave, and now they have the services of... Jaya Surya, I suppose not long after his ban expired. I know he was banned yeah. from all cricket for a couple of years. We must have, because you wouldn't be able to do it that must, kind of job even at recreational level if you were still sort of serving the ban. It must have been part of the deal, as you know, when they hammered out the contract. How many phones am I going to get? Can you replace them easily if I have to destroy them? <laughs> um, yeah, good to good to see the two phones man is 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 back in competitive cricket. I didn't get the impression he was playing. I thought he was going to be coaching. Even for club cricket, he's probably a bit long in the tooth to be putting the pads on, isn't he? No, there was a report saying he was going to captain coach. I mean, maybe they're speculating okay. that he could. He would oh. do well. I think Mulgrave's in the ECA. If Sanat Jaya played in the ECA, which hmm. 
Oh, look, there's there's two divisions. One's turf, one's not. Mm-hmm. He's going to do well. He's going to do well. Oh, so. Imagine it. Imagine Sunath rocking up with the polished head going, plonking a few over mid-wicket and bowling the left-arm nudes in, in club <laughs> cricket. He'll, ta- he'll take seven or eight wickets a game because he'll just be hit the stumps. No one else hits the stumps <laughs> in rec cricket. I can say this much. We're going to follow it closely when we get to the uh, start of the season. <laughs> but, but, it's, it's not about Sanat Jaisuria, I don't think, the number that we're solving <laughs> for Rory today. <laughs> it's been a while since we've looked at birthdays. And I thought, look, if it's going to be an obscure niche story, according to Rory, then let's give that a burl. Mm-hmm. Um, I took a look at birthdays the 4th of November, but no one particularly interesting came up. So I went the other way and mm-hmm. said, what about the 11th of April? And lo and behold, it is someone quite interesting, a man who was born on the 11th of April, 1856, none other than Arthur Shrewsbury, who for a time in the early days of Test cricket was considered alongside WG Grace as the best batsman in the world. He went on the sort of the early tours of Australia, including 1881-82 and 1884-85. He, he made his maiden test century at the Melbourne Cricket Ground in early 1885, which was the deciding test match mm-hmm. of that series. And any kind of takes off. He's known as the master of the sticky wicket. Good title, that. Imagine that was your... Your calling card. I am the master of the sticky wicket. (laughs) And there was a couple of these high-profile innings, one of which was at Lords in 1886. So as captain, he makes 164 on a a sticky dog against Australia with Spoffer fleeting the attack. Complete control, batted for hours and hours and hours and got them to safe terrain. But yes, that's his second test ton when he was captain in 1886. He goes Mm -hmm. to Australia at the end of the year, so this was the era when they're going back and forth, back and forth, pretty much playing every year or every couple of years in Australia. And they won 2-0 under his leadership on that tour. But his best innings on it, so his best innings in 1886-87, wasn't in the Uh test matches. It was in, in another game that we've talked about recently, one where a world record 803 runs were made for the smokers against the non-smokers. <laughs> First class status for that First game. Class status. No questions asked. It was, so he made his test ton at the cricket ground uh, a couple of years <laughs> earlier, back in 1885. But this was in 1887, so two years on. Yeah. And in the 803 game, uh, he made 236 of them. First of all, was B&H sponsoring this? <laughs> and, se- <laughs> and second of all, was, was Shrewsbury on, on the Gaspers team oh, or on the non-team? I, I, I didn't check, but... I'm almost certain it was the non-smokers, wasn't it? We, I think okay. we went through so this he, in the past that the non-smokers okay. were um, the team that did the business there. So, yeah, he's leading the side. Oh, and he also puts on a new third wicket record stand of 313 in first-class cricket with none other than badass Billy Gunn from WCW days from the New Age Outlaws. The pair of Nottinghamshire batsmen went bananas there. So he makes a 100 at the G, wow. then makes a double 100, essentially, in a tour game. But they're in consecutive trips to oh. Australia. Imagine... Imagine if Billy Gunn had put on a partnership of three sixteen rather than three thirteen. Oh, they still might be Stone Cold up. Steve Austin. How good would that be? It wasn't. He didn't. He used to wrestle against Stone Cold, didn't he? It was um, yeah. uh, Jesse James. What did he call himself? I reckon I could do the whole thing if pressed. Mm. The New Age Outlaws. Degeneration mm. X. Anyway, it's been a long time. It's like the roof seal ad. You know, there there are some things you'll be able to do word for word <laughs> yes. until the day you die. I'm going to I'm <laughs> going to YouTube it after we finish recording today, and you can add that to the segment next week. Going through my YouTube searches, <laughs> he goes hog wild in 1887 when he gets back at domestic level and averages 78.71, which overtook the. WG Grace record from 1871 which was 78.25 so that was his best domestic season he went back to Australia again Whoa. in 1887-88 so and that's like, an 
that's an anagram. He averaged 78.71, which is an anagram of 1871, which was the year in which the record was set that he previously, uh, that he beat. That's the way your brain's geared, Jeff. I see how you see it now. Lovely stuff. <laughs> Another trip to Oz in, in, um, was a shambles in, in 87, 88, off the field especially. So mm-hmm. they weren't playing first-choice teams. There was another team out there at the same time, all a bit of a mess. However, he made the first double century for an England team, or an England touring team, in Australia, again at the MCG, where he made his double hundred for the non-smokers and where he made his first test ton, a 232 on that tour. Mm-hmm. And then he came back to Oz 12 months on from that, not even 12 months on from that, in 1888, but not to play cricket to play in the first and what became the only tour of British Australian rules footballers. They found the game when playing cricket in Oz and they loved it so much they brought a touring party out and he, he organised a tour what? by the way. He was an administrator, Arthur Shrewsbury. He, he used to organise rugby tours. So he brings out this team to play Aussie rules south of the Brassy Line and to play rugby league north of the Brassy Line and in New what? Zealand. What? He let it. How is he not on, on our Barassi Line show? I know. Like, he was, he if was, you ever needed evidence that we don't manipulate the numbers, we would definitely have had this answer on the Barassi Line show. So, yeah, and they've never had another tour. I mean, an organised tour of sort of British Aussie rules players as such, but mm. yeah, that's back in 1888. But they have had Port Adelaide playing in China. Yes. So, like, that's the important... <laughs> and Des- the Gold Coast Port Adelaide clash. <laughs> and Desmond Tutu did watch Fremantle play in, in, in Cape Town in, in 1998. So we, we fast forward to 1890. He's flying again. He's in the Wisden Five. He has another massive stand with badass Billy Gunn, and they put on 398 for Nottinghamshire for the second wicket, which is a new record. Mm. And then in 1893, we're back to Lords, the same ground where he saw off uh, the Australians and Spofforth in 1886. So seven years later, same ground, it's Terra Turner leading the attack by this stage, and he does almost exactly the same thing. Another sticky dog makes 106 and wins the game for England. And it was in that innings where he became the first man to pass 1,000 test runs. They retain the Ashes and he averages 71 in what turns out wow. to be uh, his last international series or his last proper test series against Australia. In the end, 23 tests, 1,277 mm-hmm. runs at 35. With those three centuries, two at Lords, two memorable ones at Lords, and the first one mm-hmm. at the MCG. So pretty handy that he's kind of done it all at, at the homes of cricket, if you like, in, in England and Australia. Seven of the tests that he played, he did as captain. Won five, lost two. He was the last professional to lead England until 1952 when Len Hutton took over. He passed 20,000 first-class runs in 1897. He eventually got to 26,505 of them at 37, including 59 centuries. He still led, get this, he still led the first-class averages in England in 1902 at age 47. And this is where the, the story, unfortunately, takes a turn. Gets to the end of the season and he starts feeling some pain in his kidneys and he talks himself into believing that he's got a terminal illness and thus he won't be able to play in 1903. So he's poorly, but he's not by any stretch of the imagination, according to reports, going to die. But a deep depression set in over him. And on the 19th of May, 1903, before the season was set to start, he shot himself and died at the age of 47 years and and 38 days after his birthday on the 11th of April, which is what I'm going for, for 411 Rory Seymour. Arthur Shrewsbury. Arthur Shrewsbury. How keen would you have to be to travel back to Australia that often? It took something like 60 days on the ship. So <laughs> you'd be that's a four months out of the year commute. Um, yeah, well, I mean, you, you think just... about it. He went on, I think that's, 
I think that's four Ashes trips and a football trip. So you multiply yeah. that out if you're spending 120 days times five. I mean, it's a fuckload of days. Put it that way. <laughs> it's, it's it's ten. It's almost a year of your life spent on the ship going going back and forth. He must have really liked the ship. Mm. I reckon that's the that's what it comes down to. Is there were some good times happening on board? You know, everyone everyone feels a bit. You, we've heard about what happens on cruises. Um, everyone feels a bit footloose and fancy free. It's also an age where you might just die of diphtheria or something at any minute. So you know, live for today. <laughs> and it was probably a great time. Yeah, on the first day of the fun ship playing deck cricket. <laughs> there he was, Arthur Shrewsbury, until the very end. <laughs> the coits master. <laughs> no one no one excelled more at coits on a on a slanting deck, on a heaving sea. <laughs> Shrewsbury, he knew where the... What, I don't know what the name for the pole in coits is, but he knew where it was. All right, so again, thank you, Tim and Rory. That's just our first number, and we're about 40 minutes into oh, the Jesus. show, tracking well. Uh, <laughs> second up is Sam Chappell, 3.35. Sam, friend of the show. Uh, his clue is this a West Country flavour. Oh, a West Country flavour. That means it's, you know, it's got to have that, that nice bit of the Vic Marks accent where he, where he just roars the R a bit and it feels, you know, it's like a, it's not quite pirate, but it's it's just very homely and comforting. Okay, West Country. So, West Country, I, I'm thinking the coast on the south now we all know that my geography of the uk is is impeccable everybody who listens <laughs> to the show knows this so just for a second i did think wait on the coast at the south does that include Hove, where Murray Goodwin made 335 not out for Sussex in 2003. It definitely does not <laughs> include be, Hove. Yes, they would be very they offended. Would be furious. At, at Sussex, they would be furious if you lumped them in with, uh, with, uh, with Somerset and Gloucestershire, I'm sure. Yeah, but equally in the West Country, they'd be furious if I said Hove was belonged to, to the West Country. Probably. <laughs> no, those bastards down at Hove. So not that. Um, 335 West Country. You may be interested to know that in December 1967 in the first test in Adelaide against India, Australia batted first and made 335. India's previous and only warm-up match on that tour was against Western Australia country. Mm-hmm. Very good. That's, uh, <laughs> they should play those games again, you know. We, we've talked about, yeah. you know, Johnny Watkins and his one and only test match, but how mm-hmm. he got a start for Australia almost on the back of a New South Wales country performance against, uh, yeah. against the, I think, the touring Pakistanis earlier in the summer. We should get those fixtures as part of the annual tour again. That'd be fun. Imagine a week in, I don't know, where would we go? A week in Coffs Harbour watching New South mm-hmm. Wales country against the touring English, for example. I, I, yeah. I, I'm into it. Like the Lou Litster story, you know, get the standout player from Townsville or from, yeah, from Geraldton yeah. or Broome. Now Broom, we're talking. You know, well, what about Wangaratta? We could go back to yeah. Wangaratta. We'd go with Dane Hanstead, the Wangaratta zone, mm-hmm. and we could bring mm-hmm. Graham Vimpani with us for a proper final mm-hmm. word experience. Absolutely. Get back to Tony Island Stadium in Townsville and find out what FNQ has to offer. You know, Bob Catter, he doesn't have time to think about the cricket because every few minutes someone's being torn (laughs) apart by a crocodile in northern Queensland. (laughs) So, okay, but to find the West Country flavour, I I eventually went back to a more simple method. And so, DC, can you play uh, play the music for me? Yes, the one and only. I've stolen your bit. I've so, I've so, I'm stealing Adam's bit for this show because you know it's like when your friend has a really great party shirt or something, and you want to you want to wear it out one night. You're like, just give me just give me a go. 
give me a go with the shit. This I'm looking is, forward um, to this. This is great. You're doing you're doing a dirty old ba- a dusty old bastard. I'm doing a dusty old bastard. Not quite a dirty old bastard. Not an old dirty bastard, but a dusty old bastard. A one and only. Uh, not quite. Now this this is a bit earlier than your era, but it is just we're just sneaking into post World War Two. So I okay. think it's I th- I think it's okay. I think it fits in with this bracket because three three five was our number. West Country was our clue. Uh, who was cap number 335, your preferred device, Adam? Born in Cornwall, died near Bristol, West Country as you can get, no hove anywhere near this fella, Jack Crap. What a name, <laughs> what a guy. Jack Crap, the polite way of saying jack shit. He was a Gloucestershire player for 20 seasons Starting uh, in 1936, so with World War II intervening, played 15 English seasons. All but one of those seasons, he topped 1,000 runs in first-class cricket in those English seasons. The one time that he didn't, he still topped 800. He also went on a tour to South Africa and made over 800 runs on that trip as well. So he was was one of those kind of... County pros who could do all the jobs, uh, who could come up and down the order as required, um, it, and he wasn't really looked at for England in his in his prime, you know, leading up to the Second World War. But after the war, just happened to be 1948. Gloucestershire just happened to play the touring Australian side, and Jack Crap bucks up and makes an even hundred runs, which. You know, it might not be the most exciting thing in the world, but it was in the second innings after the Australians had made 774. <laughs> Just another one of those non-smokers, v-smokers totals of the time. So the Gloucestershire team's pretty knackered, and yet he comes out and makes a ton while everyone else is falling over. Then they're forced to follow on. He very nearly top scores again. He's a couple of runs away from top score, making another 32. And that gets him into the test side at a... An advanced age, uh, shall we say. Jeff, I've got a thought here. The, the 774, the mm-hmm. 3 0 Melbourne. Yep. Maybe we should do a special at some stage, a special at some stage based on radio frequencies. The 693, mm-hmm. the 612. What else would we go for? From I suppose the 1278 has probably never happened, but there's a good handful yeah. of Melbourne radio frequencies that deserve having their stories told. Just laying a marker. I always think when that Victoria total comes up, the 11... What is it? 11... 11.07 or whatever it is. The, the, um, yes, yes. Well, it's the, quite close the, to 11.16, who I'm working for mm. this week. <laughs> yeah, that's, it, it does, that does come to mind when it comes up. So radio frequencies around the world, perhaps. I've hit upon a website called Radio Garden, which is like Google Maps. It shows you a map of the world. You can go to any country, and then it will show you all of the radio stations in the country on the map as to where their headquarters are. But if you click on them, you can stream a radio broadcast from any station in the world. So I'm just... If you click I'm on the it, it immediately now. comes up with Freddie Mercury singing Radio Gaga, I, I thought you were going to say. It, it, <laughs> well, I'm just looking at Kazakhstan now. I'm on Love Radio FM 103.8, Kazakhstan. Play it They're to us. Playing. What are we getting? Play it through, play it through your speaker. So that's Radio Aksai from Aksai, Kazakhstan. That's the hottest tunes that are being played Would in Would it be Aksai. wrong to say that's exactly how I thought Kazakhstani radio would sound? Am I, <laughs> am I typecasting? I mean, possibly, but it's possibly not unreasonable to do so. We can only go on what we see okay. and, and what we hear, and, and that's, what we've, that's where we've got to so far. So, so where am I with this So back story? to Jack right. Crapper, 1936. <laughs> 
I just it's just such a great name. Jack Crap would eat no fat, his wife would eat no lean. <laughs> so between the two of them they licked the toilet clean. I don't know. It's it's not good. It's not good wherever this is going. Oh, um, right. So he gets in the test team in nineteen forty eight. He's he must be thirty six or thirty seven or something by this stage. He's he was born in nineteen twelve, so you do the maths, it's not my not my strong point. I guess he's maybe he's thirty five turning thirty six. But he's coming into the test team for the third test against the Invincibles, who've obviously already been doing okay on the tour. He makes a few runs, doesn't do horribly, but basically gets uh, gets sorted out pretty well by Ray Lindwell and, and Keith Miller. And then a little while later, he plays four more tests on a tour of South Africa. Goes okay, makes 350s on the tour. And he's the player who's not out in a match we've talked about before, the fifth test of that South Africa tour, when England was set 172 to chase in an hour and a half. And unlike the England team of the last week or so at Lords, they decided to go for mm. it. They went after it and they lost a few wickets, but they just kept going. So Jack Crap, the Crap Master, was coming in at number six and held things together. He was 20-odd not out by the end. They needed 11 off the last two overs, and he smacked a couple of boundaries to win with three balls to spare. So a dramatic win, and that was his last test. Didn't get picked again. Back to county cricket until 1956, when he called time on 20 years with Gloucestershire in the West Country for Sam Chappell, Jack Crap. Feels like the sort of innings or the sort of story we, I, I, I want to learn more about now. Knocking off 172 in an hour and a half and 11 from the last two overs. I mean, that's... Yep. That's right up there, isn't it? I think it was Len Hutton who was doing most of the damage in, in that innings. But, yeah, it was a, a team sort of decision that, you know, rather than muck around, we, mm. we're going to go all out for this. And, yeah, they managed to make it work with uh, – I'm not sure if that was the one where the storm clouds might have been coming in and, and threatening as well. But, yeah, in that, in that fourth innings, there were no big scores, but it was Compton 42, Washbrook 40, Hutton 32 – and Jack Crap 26 not out. So between them, they got the, the 174 they needed to win. Next up, Jeff, is 357 from James Tiernan, and he comes with a clue as well. Yeah, this is a strong clue. The only problem being that I sometimes can't remember what we've previously talked about on the show, <laughs> and other people have a better memory of it than us. But I vaguely remember this. James said on the back of uh, his pledge that related to Durham last time, this one was inspired by Adam's description of the lost... Bizarro world slash Wario existence he never got to fulfil. A Wario existence is Wario's the the evil Mario. Yes. This is the the alternative, or weird Mario, I think, is where Wario comes from. It's like the alternative version that could have been you had you done things differently. Yeah, I feel like it, it, in my memory, Wario was was a big, sort of bulkier version of Mario. Perhaps Luigi-sized mm. Mario, but with muscles and, and all the rest but of it. But he's chunkier. Kind of, yeah, he was he kind of a bad... Purple. Yeah, he was a bad guy, I think, when you reflect on how he bobbed mm. up in different Mario games. Look, before I saw the clue... I was thinking of Bobby Abel and Don Bradman and their three five sevens, mm-hmm. mostly, and I was very excited about that too because it was only this time last week that we were discussing Bradman's three six nine that he made in the February of nineteen thirty six. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the triple ton from four weeks earlier, the three five seven, but not to be. And that was thirty seven years after Bobby Abel made his three fifty seven at yeah. the Oval. But there's no Durham hook there either. Yeah, but how many four hundreds did Bradman make? Yeah, exactly, just the one, just the one, not that good. Not as many as Bill one. Ponsford. Could have done better. Had many chances. Didn't it go on. It was the real quiz. Uh, so the 
look, the, the, Durham, the Durham hook last time was that uh, his number was 3-1-2, James, and that was the score they made when they pumped Hampshire to win the one-day cup in 2007, Durham's first trophy. That led me, if I recall correctly, down a path where I was saying, oh, gee, if life were 10% different, I'd love to live in the northeast. I think living in County mm-hmm. Durham or living in Sunderland would be, a, would be a wonderful thing. But went on to say that that's not possible because my life is very much in London, uh, so that won't be happening. So I wondered whether that's what James is referring to, this lost bizarro world or Wario world that I've never had the chance to fulfil. And that's about as far as I've got. I mean, I'm looking at the number, 357. That doesn't compute with the story I've just told. It doesn't mm-hmm. seem to jump out about either my alternate life or the Durham County Cricket Club. So I think we're going to need a bit more help. But I also thought this might be one the crowd might enjoy taking a look at, trying to place 357 somewhere between Mario Brothers, me, mm-hmm. and Durham. Have fun with that. Mm-hmm. Is there a rainbow road? Is that what Dominic Cummings was driving when he was trying to work out if he could see? He's just driving the rainbow road. He's like, whoa, this is crazy. It's like turtles shooting shells and shit. Tested his eyes. Yeah, that's right. He was uh, up at Barnacle Castle. And when he got there... Thank you, Dominic, but our princess is in another Barnard Castle. He's, he's on, he's, uh, and Shane Watson's on the floor shitting himself. <laughs> of course, that's the same castle where Shane Watson ran into sleep uh, next to Brett Lee back in 2005. Happier times. <laughs> Happier, simpler times. So there's nothing sort of Durham-related with the, the 357 that, that you could pin down? Really nothing. I mean, I had a look, but it, mm. it's got to be somewhere else. So we'll, we'll look at that during the week and come back to it on Storytime okay. next Saturday. Rainbow Road. All right. Well, James, just give us a bit of a nudge and we'll come back to it on the revisits when we have uh, a bit more time to think about this. Uh, one more new number just as well because we've been taking our time. Yes, and that next and final number is from Matt Keane. 375, a number we've uh, we've enjoyed on the final word in the past. But Matt says the number relates to a once world record, less BC, perhaps a little more JJ, and more IT. Okay. So I'm assuming this doesn't mean before Christ and it doesn't mean... Uh Information technology, um, <laughs> infotech support, any of those sort of things. 375. So, less BC, Matt Keane means not Brian Charles Lara, not the 375 that was the world record test score for a 10 wonderful years. Perhaps a little JJ and more IT. So, this indicates to me that it's a bowling number because I'm, I'm deducing that he means JJ Ferris, one of the great early bowlers, and IT Botham, who held the world record for test wickets for a time. So not Lara with the 375 for runs. The, the point of confusion... So I, I've worked out some things that can... that almost work here, but again, as I want to do, they almost work if the number is slightly different. But JJ Ferris never held the, the world record for test bowling. He, he right. was super prolific with his wicket-taking speed in that he took nine wickets in his first test and nine wickets in his second test and pretty much never slowed down. Ended up with 61 wickets from nine test matches. Just bananas, uh, the the speed that he went at. But by the time he started bowling in 1888, Spofforth, who you mentioned earlier, the first great bowler, had already retired with 94 test wickets to his name, which was the record for quite some time. So Ferris never held the record, but 
when Botham took the record, he took it from Dennis Lilly. Dennis Lilly had 355 wickets. Botham went past that. And he ended up at the end of his career with 383, but he lost the record when he was on 373. He got caught by Richard Hadley. Right. But Richard Hadley drew level with Botham in a test match and couldn't go past him. So the the famous Boxing Day test at the MCG in 1987 where Mike Whitney had mm. to come out at nine wickets down and block out a few overs for the draw. At that point, Richard Hadley had th- 373 wickets. He'd, he'd equaled both them for the record. And so if he'd got the last wicket to win the test match, he would have taken the record uh, in his own right, but he couldn't do so. And that was in December. In February, he played a test against England in Christchurch and bowled 18 overs in the first innings, didn't take a wicket, which was unusual for him in 18 overs, and then pinged his calf muscle and had to sit out the rest of the match and the rest of the series. And so he was still stuck on 373 until November, so almost a full year later, when they toured India and he went there and took the wicket to go to 374, the first wicket to fall in in the next test match. So... He got both the openers. He got Aaron Lyle for the 374 wicket and Chris Srikanth for the 375, which would be Matt Keane's number. But he took more wickets in that innings as well. So it's not like he ended that test match. I think he took five or six in that, yeah, five for 65 in that first innings against India. So if Matt's number were 374, it would make sense as that was the number that Hadley was striving for for so long to get the world record on his own. But Matt's number is 375. So did Matt mean his number to be 374? Thinking that Hadley was on 374 and needed to get to 375, but he was actually on 373 and needed to get to 374. Or, as usually is the case, am I the one who's wrong? (laughs) Is it me or are the children wrong? (laughs) I was going to say, we've been down this path Uh, before as recently as the weekly show, actually, when you're like, maybe Mm. they've got the number wrong. Why don't you let us know, yeah. Matt? Is 375 the actual number you wanted to send through? Does it relate to JJ Ferris and IT Botham? Does it relate to something else altogether? The good thing about this mm. show is that we're into the 51st of them and we're going to keep making them. So we can come back to your number next week and then we'll solve it for real this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much every number is a two to three week exercise at the moment, which means that we're at the, the break time. The breathe in, the breathe out. Get yourself a really cheap cricket bat. We'll tell you how. Severely discounted, sweet equipment. And then we'll do the revisits where we look at the numbers we didn't get right and we try to get them right the second time around. Stick with us. Hi, I'm Brian Roddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Jeff, everybody is talking about Woodstock cricket. Everybody. Everybody. Are they? Not really, but everybody inside cricket is talking about Woodstock cricket. Mm. And why wouldn't you? After their rebrand during the off-season, beautiful-looking bats. After going 1-2 in the good gear guide, which was Mm -hmm. a blind test. It's not as though they knew they were holding a Woodstock, but the judges said, that's the best bat in the country. And they said, that's the Mm second-best bat in the country. And it happens to be Woodstock Mm -hmm. 1, Woodstock 2. They've gone 1-2. If they had three bats in contention, they might have gone 1-2-3, like the Australians in the 1,500 metres at the 1994 Commonwealth Games. But they didn't. They had two bats in there, and they went 1-2. And because you're listening to this, and you're part of our Final Word community, you can get your hands on one of these award-winning blades at a 20% discount. All because you know us. This is how it works. They support us. Mm -hmm. We support them. And they mm-hmm. transfer that 
support onto you, the consumer. It's remarkable. Let me tell you something about 20% uh, because I'm, I'm the maths guy on this show uh, this week. That's one in five. That's that's one dollar or one pound out of each five that you would have had to spend that you don't have to spend. How about this? A, one in five innings you're getting for free. That's another way of interpreting yeah. it. Yes, one in five runs you score uh, is courtesy of, <laughs> of Woodstock. But in fact, a hundred percent of the runs you score will be courtesy of Woodstock because uh, the bats are so nice that you'll have to score runs with them. It's, 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 I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and make this guarantee. It is physically impossible not to <laughs> score runs with Woodstock bats. This is not a guarantee. <laughs> yes, and I can't wait to get to not uh, to have my own day in the viewing room in the warehouse there where they, they take you through from the very start of the process, just picking up bats and looking at them and feeling your way mm-hmm. through and, and they make a recommendation with their expert bat makers. So it's all part of the process, all part of the fun. They're putting the customer first and they really are... Uh, revolutionising the way that people buy cricket bats. So woodstockcricket.co.uk. The code is TFW20. Could not be more straightforward. Jump on the website. It's all in the show notes. Get yourself a bat. You deserve it. Or some pads or some gloves or whatever you want. Go on. Hi, my name's Kate Cross and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. This is The Final Word. Story time. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins, the revisits, the numbers that we have not worked out yet, but we might just work them out this time around. First of all, $12.19 coming in from Shane Fagg. Adam Collins was looking at the test career of Sammy Jones, (laughs) a bloke who was run out in 1882 with consequences for the future of cricket. Uh, It was not the case. Uh, Shane has written in with a few more hints to get Adam closer to the answer. Yes, uh, Shane Fagg uh, has a favourite cricketer and his favourite cricketer was the 12th man for Australia on 19 occasions. Queenslander, Andy Bickle. He also played, oh, that's a good number. He also played 19 test matches. So he 12th man 19 times, thus 12-19. Um, an eight-year career, but yes, yeah, so often the drinks waiter. He's been giving support to Michael Nisa of late. Uh, of course, Michael told us about that when we interviewed him a few weeks ago on Storytime, explaining that Actually, it was on the weekly show, wasn't it? Not story time. But nevertheless, we did talk to the Glamorgan bowler before um, uh, playing over here for the first time this season. And he said that he was receiving sort of support and advice from Andy Bickle, another Queenslander, because he's now been in 24 consecutive Australian squads, Nisa. I don't think he's been 12th man for all of those. There was a a calculation done by cricket.com in an interview with him about this time last year, and they said that he'd done it about a dozen times. And Australia played Mm. India four times, so he might have done it. 16. Yeah. It doesn't really exist, though, anymore, does it? Because you know, well, there's on the always team sheet, three right? or four players. But it doesn't mean anything because there are three or four players doing that job who are yeah. in the squad who yeah. are hanging out. Like it, it, It's not it's not as formalised as it once was where you literally had a 12th and that was it. No, that, that's true. But uh, nevertheless, I think that he, he will put it this way. Andy Pickles uh, is in his crosshairs. He, if he's on 16, that's four more mm. test matches. And, you know, who would doubt that they would overlook him again this summer? Hopefully not, though. He's bowling beautifully over here, taking his wickets at about... 14 or something like that over five games. Now, Andy Bickle, back to him. As a kid in 1994-95 when he was starting his journey, he was a big part of that famous Queensland team that won the Shield for the first time. Two years later, he got his test debut at Adelaide Oval against the West Indies, which was a team he went on to dominate seven years later, Jeff, when he picked up Brian Lara seven times in the space of a series. It was in that window between 2000 and 2003 when he was getting picks pretty consistently across the two formats. Indeed, 
You might remember, Jeff, before the 2002-03 Ashes series, Bickle was picked ahead of Brett Lee, which was kind of a big deal at the time, given mm. the impression Lee had made uh, a few years earlier. The 2003 World Cup was probably his most famous performance for Australia, taking seven for 20 against England and then putting on uh, 73 runs with Michael Bevan for the ninth wicket, which proved to be match-winning both with ball and bat-popping Jimmy Anderson uh, up into the mm. scoreboard there at Port Elizabeth. Which we talked about only days ago on the weekly show. That's right, that's right. It all comes full circle. His best bowling in Test cricket was a Test match that you and I were both at, Jeff. He took five for 60 against the Windies at Melbourne in 2000. In 2004, I forgot this bit, he didn't have his contract renewed, which is pretty shit when you consider like how important he was in that World Cup, taking 16 wickets at 12. They left him off the contract list like within 12 months of that. Likewise, Michael Bevan, for that matter. But he went on to sort of stick it up the selectors by taking 60 wickets in 2004, 2005. It wasn't enough to get himself on the Ashes plane. He was playing a lot of county cricket through that stretch of time. But he was back in Australia in, in 2005, 2006 and became the Sheffield Shield Player of the Year. Not only for his bowling, 50 wickets at 27, but his batting. He averaged 35 and he took the final wicket in that Sheffield Shield win for Queensland as well. So a fine way for him to get towards the end of his career. And he took another 45 wickets a season after that in the twilight of his time at Queensland. Made his ninth first-class century against the touring Sri Lankans and that was just about it. But yes, finished with 769 first-class wickets, 460 of them with Queensland at an average of 26 and a batting average of 26.5. And Jeff, by definition, if your batting average mm-hmm. is higher than your bowling average, as far as I'm concerned, you're an all-rounder. And, you know, I, I knew yep. that Bick had made runs at first-class level sort of towards the end of his career, but I didn't realise that his batting average actually got above his very healthy bowling average of 26. So that's our man today, Andy Bickle. And one last point from Shane Fagg. He's emailed us the most gorgeous photo of him with Dennis Lilly when he's a kid in Dennis Lilly's arms. It must have been in the dressing room or something like that. But the look in young Shane Fagg's eyes, I mean, it's quite special. And even Dennis Lilly, for that matter, who, who uh, sort of, I suppose, knew the significance of having this young fella who clearly idolised him as, as a lad. So, uh, Shane Fagg, I'm glad we're able to answer your question correctly and talk about one of your favourites, Andy Bickle. Lovely stuff, Adam. I like it. Um, he always had such a nice smile, Andy Bickle. You thought, oh, oh he's a nice fella. He was probably a very angry Queenslander and <laughs> like all, all the rest of them, but still. Uh, Daniel O'Connell, $4.29. We were looking at the Sri Lankan off-spinner Dilrawan Pereira. Of course we were. 4 for 29 in a test <laughs> against Australia at Gaul in 2016. Of course we were. Why not? When would I not want to talk to you about Dilrawan Pereira? Now, Daniel replied saying, uh, surprisingly, that was wrong. And he gave us a clue that is, now this is a bit of a mind bender. He said, my clue is that 429 relates to the percentage of overall test wickets taken by a player in one honourable innings. So as okay. we've discussed, I'm, I'm the maths guy on the final word, so I've taken this one on. I, I, I can't do maths. This, this really cost me. Like I had to dig very deep for this, Adam. I hope you appreciate it. Right. Percentage of wickets taken by a player in one innings. So this means that we've got to work out what this means, first of all. It can't mean the percentage of the wickets in the innings because there are 10, which means that by definition they'll only be taken in multiples of 10. Yep. You know, you can only take 40 or 50 or 60%. You can't take 42.9%. So I eventually decided I had to assume that this means the percentage of the player's career wickets taken in one innings. 
as in one player took 42.9% of right. their career wickets in one innings. And I'm going to assume that it's test matches because that's what that's kind of our default setting on the final yeah, innings. We so go with test matches. I, I can see what's happened here. So I'm reading the sentence again, and I think you and I have both read it the same way, which is the first way you explained it. But it looks like Dan mm. meant it the other way around, where there's more heavy lifting done on the percentage of overall test wickets. That's the career bit. And the one right. honourable innings. Yeah, okay. So we had it asked about. We're, we're on track mm-hmm. here, I reckon. Right. And so bear in mind this is... the uh, Over the last week or so, I've been cleaning out a storeroom full of many, many boxes of random <laughs> shit of all kinds of papers and stuff, including a lot of my old school work, which for some reason I had kept and I have no longer kept. But in amongst that was a tranche of maths homework and with with teachers' comments on it, which made for some amusing reading. But, you know, let me assure you that there was no prediction from any of my teachers that I would be going a long way in the field of even very simple mathematics. So so bear this in mind. I was like, all right, we have 42.9%, which means that we need to – I need to figure out what I multiply that by to get to a round number because that's got to be the round number that we're dividing, if that makes sense. Like, you – the number of wickets has to be a round number. So what times 42.9 is going to get me to that? So the algebra homework that I had to cast my mind back to, which is quite handy actually, reminds me that you do a percentage by doing X divided by Y times 100. Yep. Right? You put that in brackets and that equals 42.9. Right. So via algebra, you, you get rid of the... 100 and the X and whatever, and you work out that X equals 0.429 times Y. So that means that uh, times 0.429 times something is going to be X, and it, it, it needs to be something that's going to help it equal a round number, which means... Give or take a couple of small decimals, it means 7. If you multiply 0.429 by 7, you approximately get a round number, which means it could also apply to multiples of seven. Okay. Okay. So go with me on this. (laughs) If someone has seven career wickets and they took three of them in one innings, that would be 0.429%. Ah. Right? And that would also work for multiples of seven. Yeah, yeah. if they took took six wickets out of 14 or nine wickets out of 21. Yeah. Now – I'm tipping that no one who's got 21 career wickets has got a best of a nine for in an innings. That probably hasn't happened. Okay. So we're looking, we're probably, we're probably, we're almost certainly looking for three. Yeah, most likely a three, possibly a six. In fact, I know there's no nine for because there are four different players who've got a best of six wickets in an innings who only took 21 in a career, which huh. is kind of crazy Interesting. to me. Okay. But if you're looking at players who've got seven wickets in a career, and a best of three in an innings. There are quite a few. There are about 15 or so, including um, Jeff Boycott, who who did it when they used 10 bowlers against South Africa yes. right, at, right at the end of junk time. He became a bit of a golden arm in that, just briefly then. And mm. then he went out and he didn't bowl for about 14 years and he bobs up again uh, in the 1979 mm. World Cup and takes two wickets against Australia bowling in his hat. So it's a, it's a weird analysis <laughs> when you look at the way that he was used quite a bit in the mid-60s, early mid-60s, mm. and then seldom after that yep. until 79. Uh, Xavier Doherty's test best when he got a few tail-enders against India. Yes, I remember that. that was, uh, which, which, which of the four was that when he came back to 
he replaced Nathan for the second test. So you were calling it Hyderabad. Yeah, Hyderabad. No. So the first one was yeah, the, the first one was Chennai, and and the fourth one was yeah. Delhi, and the third was Mahali. So it must have been Hyderabad. The third was Mahali. Yeah, yeah. So it must have been. And also another one with seven career and a best of three in an innings. Scotty Muller can't bowl, can't throw down in the Pakistan game and bowled really well. It, that was the second innings at, at Brisbane. So on debut. Uh, and bowled mm-hmm. okay in the first, but bowled really, really well in the second innings and hit the crack a couple of times, which, of course, helps the situation. It always does. Mm-hmm. But, um, yes, that was the uh, that was the first of two test matches he played. Yeah, he got into Mom out and Moen Khan um, bowled pretty well down, down in Hobart. So those are the seven and three, but I also looked at the 14 and six. Yep. And there are a few players who've got 14 in a career with a best of six in an innings, oh. and they are Arif Butt, who was a spinner on debut for Pakistan, Marcus North. Yes, at Lords, Lord. yes. Nutty Martin in <laughs> 1890. And guess who? Don Blackie, your favourite, the bloke who debuted at 49 or whatever it was. Don Blackie only took, I would have thought he took more than 14 test wickets. There you go. 14 test wickets with a best of 6 for 94 in a, a great test match. In The, the actual test match spanned 1928-29. It, it ran over New Year's Eve and in, into January when Australia made 397, England made 417, Australia made 351, and then England chased 332 at seven wickets down, an all-time test match. But... I wanted to go back to Nutty Martin, because who doesn't, <laughs> to be honest? Um, now, this is a guy who played two tests in his career, left-arm spinner at a time when England had Bobby Peel and so on, and Briggs as well, a bunch of good left-arm spinners. But he got a couple of test matches. And at the Oval in 1890, he bowls out Australia for 92. He takes six for 50. England get bowled out for 100, and even 100. JJ Ferris is in that match and takes four wickets. Australia make 102 in the third innings uh, and with Ferris batting at first drop. What was he doing at first drop? You know, I assume it must have been a night watchman situation, but JJ Ferris is up the order. Nutty Martin takes six for 48 in the second <laughs> innings. So six for and six for, and then England chase the 95 that they need to win eight wickets down. So Nutty does the business twice. He only played one more test two years later with Ferris in the team this time because he'd switched to play for England. <laughs> it was just wild west stuff at the time. And this was uh, against South Africa. And Nutty Martin didn't get to bowl in the first innings. His previous test match, he took 12 for 98. And his next outing, he didn't get to bowl because Ferris sent down 30 overs and they only used a couple of bowlers. He took two wickets in the second innings, Nutty Martin, ended up with 14, never played again. So in terms of the 42.9%, of his career, Nutty Martin did it twice. He took 42.9% of his career First wickets on two innings. separate occasions in the same and match. then got two in his second test match. And get this for a cherry on top, he died without ever knowing that his second match was a test match because it got of ruled course. a test match decades later. That's right, yes. So he lived his whole life having only played one test in which he took 12 for 98 and never got to play another test. And then later on, he got a second test added to his analysis. Yeah, it's, it's the same for JJ Ferris. So there's this extra game. He goes on, is it Lord Hawke's tour, if I recall correctly? And yeah, he finds out years It'll be on, that same game because he's, he's bowling game. with Martin yeah. in, in that match. So yeah. Ferris, I can't remember the specifics now, but he wasn't, he, he, he played all the tour games, took like 200 wickets on tour, but only got given, it might have yeah. been a one-off test match. 
I go as far to say a one-off test match at Cape Town maybe and yeah so, it was a, it, so what happened was that all of the other games on tour they played against more than 11 they played against larger teams right. because there was also an MCC team touring Australia at the same time. Ah, that's right. And yes. so so none of the matches were deemed to be first class except for this last one, which was against 11 and which was subsequently, decades later, ruled to be a test match. Fantastic, Jeff. You've done well. As you say, you're the final word mathematician today. Dan O'Connell, <laughs> in the unlikely of it, that's correct. I mean... <laughs> On the other hand... Lie to me. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those you need to lie to, Jeff, because he's done a superb job there. Fantastic. And the last number we're revisiting today, we have some work to do here. Ian Callan, we said, was 3-2-4 mm. last week via Dane Hanson. Mad dog. Mad dog Ian Callan. Then we got a bunch of messages about Ian Callan. One from Terry Hogan, who enjoyed Mad Dog getting a mention. A bit of the story you missed was that on the night before the final day of his one and only test in Adelaide, he collapsed in the team hotel and was placed on an intravenous drip before recovering to take the key wickets in Australia's victory. Apparently the collapse was due to a bad reaction to injections he was given in preparation mm. for the upcoming West Indies tour. Thank you, Terry, for that one. And yeah, dog. Yeah, I, I did see something about that. I think he got all of his inoculations at once, but they inoculated him for yellow fever and cholera and diphtheria and who knows what else. They're like, just jab them all in. It was like a Long Island iced tea of vaccinations. And they gave it to him halfway through a test match. Especially not ideal when, yeah, when you're playing at Adelaide in the oppressive heat. Uh, anyway, mm. and the other note about Mad Dog was from Ross River Davey. Who, oh, yeah, speaking of vaccinations. Speaking of vaccinations and, and, and injections gone wrong in my case, I think he may have been involved with a man cad in a district final in Melbourne. I can't remember much about it, but it was pretty notorious at the time in the mid-'80s. He loves the old stuff and he wants more old wazzlers. Well, we'll try that maybe Oof. next week, Ross River Davey. But um, if you know about... I, I had a quick Google and couldn't find anything, but if you know anything about the Ian... Callan Mancad from a district final in Melbourne. We want to find oh. out about it. In fact, maybe we can go right to the source. We can get in touch with Ian and get him on the show and talk us through it. Um, keep an talk eye on about that. our crossover of our areas. I know. Middle of our Venn we'll wait for the next bit. Mad Dog Mancad. We'll wait, wait for, you think we'll wait for the next bit talking about our okay. Venn diagram. So Dane told us that of course we were wrong, but that it was a Victorian player and related to one day international cricket, and that his previous pledge one sixteen is currently mm -hmm. in two columns of this player's ODI stats page. And then he went mm -hmm. on to give us the major tell, which is it relates to um, to South Belgrave, which doesn't relate to regional Victoria, as Dane's pledges Almost. have in the past. It's right at the end of the of the longest train line out yeah, of Melbourne. Yeah, I suppose you would call South Belgrave, it'd be in what we would call in politics an interface seat, not quite metro, not mm. quite rural, somewhere in between. And, of course, South Belgrave's favourite son, our favourite son as well, Glenn James Maxwell, a yes. man who has played 116 one-day internationals and has hit 116 one-day international sixes. How neat's that? And not one oh, per dang. game, by the way. He's only batted 106 times. Ten times his services haven't been called mm. upon. As for the 324, that's the number of runs that Maxwell made uh, in the 2015 World Cup, the successful World Cup for him and Australia, at an average of 64.9, But and that's incredible, but... And so is the runs tally, really, given where he was batting. But even better, the strike rate, 182.02. That included mm -hmm. a run of 66 or 40 balls against England on Valentine's Day, which, of course, is now, I should say, on Winnie's birthday, just six years before mm -hmm. she arrived. 88 of 39 balls against Afghanistan. His century against Sri Lanka, 102 from 53 balls. 44 not out from 29 deliveries against Pakistan in the quarterfinal. And 23 of 14 against India in the semifinal. He didn't 
bat in the final, one of the ten times mm. he hasn't in one-day internationals, but did take the big wicket of Jeff, was it... Who was it in the final? Guptill? Marty Guptill, caught behind. That's right, by Brad Haddon. Right. Overall, his strike rate in ODIs is 120. I'm pretty happy I can do that off the top of my head. No, it's good. I, well, I, I had a lot to drink at the World Cup final uh, in 2015, <laughs> so don't expect me to remember. Um, his strike rate in one day is 125.4, which is the second best of all time behind Andre Russell, who's at 130 at the moment. Universe mm. Joss is 118. Hardik Pandya, 117. Shahid Afridi, 117 as well. But Maxwell in there with the silver medal so far, but with time on his side. Mm. Can he go past Andre Russell by the end of their respective careers? We'll back him in on the final word. Now, thank you, Dane Hanstead. Three, two, four. I love that. I love the 116s uh, from Dane's last pledge coming through twice in this one. Love your work, Dane. Uh, you, you do great things for us on the final word. Uh, one of our Premier slips catches, Dane Hans said. He he catches the bobble when there is one. <laughs> so on to the confirmations, the ones we got right. Uh, the $12.22 from Ollie Chauhan. Uh, I said James Anderson's run total in test cricket at the time of the pledge. No longer, but, but at the time, 12.22 runs. But it actually got better than that. So Ollie says, fantastic work, well done. The stat was brought to his attention during Jimmy's 150th test match. He became the 10th player to reach that milestone. And, of course, Jimmy's the only bowler. So it kind of stands out on the on the runs chart that he only had 1,222 compared to the others who, who were there who were specialist bats. But it, it's a bit better. That 1222 really stuck out as an anomaly, Ollie said. And the symmetry that you spotted was even better than the one he saw. But I quite like this. At time of writing, Jimmy had 611 test wickets and 1,222 mm. test runs. Exactly double for half, going by the one two two two, which is pretty remarkable, according to Ollie. And I agree with him. So one wicket for every two runs he scores... And it highlights the contrast in the two skill sets, mm. he concludes. Now, thinking this through, Jimmy's on 616 test wickets. And, of course, we're monitoring yep. that closely on our Patreon page, hoping to stay just ahead of Jim. I'm not sure if we're there as he starts uh, his next test match. I'll get you to look that up, Jeff. But what we'll do through the summer is we'll keep a close eye on Anderson's runs and a close eye on how many patrons we've got, and hopefully they all remain in perfect harmony uh, through the mm-hmm. through the seven tests that England are scheduled to play this season. We're on six fourteen. We're two behind. Okay, two behind Jimmy. Can we get him during this week, or is he <laughs> going to take like sixteen wickets in a test um, and and just absolutely ruin us? I, I should um, I should mention as well that I what I forgot to mention about Nutty Martin was that he he held the record for the best figures on debut until Bob Massey came along. Really? In, when was it? 1972. 1980, 72. Yeah. So, yeah, so, this, so 1890 when Nutty Martin did the business with 12 for 98 in the match, nobody took better figures on debut until Bob Massey nearly a century later. Yeah, until Massey took his 16. Very nice. Jeff, we have some more confirmations. Yep. Uh, Peter Brown has said that the Peter Tui uh, nomination for $1.22 was correct. It referred to the 122 that time for a Tui's made in a test match. He's one test 100. Uh, well done. Peter Tui, it was. Already have ideas for the next pledge, says Peter Brown. You can do that. If you've already had a pledge on the show, you can go to Patreon, you can edit your number, and you can have a new pledge. You go back on the list and we do it all again. So they're the three confirmations. Some correspondence to round out the show. The first bit here is from Rory Dennis. Just catching up with some of your excellent work. I have a suggestion for the Zimbabwean Australian Test Trophy if it's ever played for 
again, we talked about this a fortnight ago or so. Mm -hmm. uh, Rory goes on to say that someone who achieved great things in both countries, played both test cricket and one-day cricket for Zimbabwe, was important in the protest in the 2003 World Cup and then came to Australia and competed in the Voice Australia it has to be the Henry Alonga Cup. And I could not be more supportive of that, given uh, that Henry has listened to uh, a podcast on the Bad Producer label before. The Greatest Season That Was presents uh, World Cup 99. He listened to all of those eps and sent some lovely tweets out about the Andy Flower interview and episode, uh, which, of course, he was a big part of the Andy Flower story four years on from 1999 and at 1999 as well, actually. He, he took some important wickets there and was an exciting part of that tournament. So I couldn't agree more. The Henry Alonga Cup, bring it on. Yeah, get him up there. He's got to go to India, Henry Alonga. <laughs> Why not put his name on the cup? Rob O'Neill oh. has written in to <laughs> remind you, Adam, is, uh, because last time we did the show, you mentioned that you still have Joe Angel's batting helmet. Rob O'Neill says, you do not have Joe Angel's batting helmet anymore. I bought it from you. <laughs> he did. Now, now, I did forget this, and it relates to the greatest season that was, uh, again, so consecutive mentions here. So... During the Australia A series, when we happened upon that helmet, Gilly did enjoy it. He brought it into the SCN studios. Jared Waitley put it on and posed for a photo. All, all good fun. But it was during the bushfires of January uh, 2020, so we decided to raise some money for charity through eBay. I think we got about a grand for it. Rob was happy to pay in that auction, and now it belongs to him. Fair enough, too. If you're, willing to, if you're willing to pay the money and give the money to charity, you, you should have that helmet. Wow. He owns the Joey Angel. So I can imagine when Rob's sending me through a curly nerd pledge, I can imagine that he's doing it wearing the Joe Angel helmet <laughs> while at his keyboard yeah. trying to figure well, out well, his new well, number. Well, well, the next thing we need to get hold of, Jeff, as we went to record today, we learned that Greg Rowell has become a, a new director of Cricket Australia, which is great. I mean, mm -hmm. I never thought. I never, ever thought that Cricket Australia would agree to to support the nomination of someone who ran for the Labor Party back in 2008 against Campbell Newman. But there he is, Greg Rowe, now a CA director, alongside Hollywood Mike Baird. I don't know how that's going to work. Anyway, and Greg Rowe told us in that same series of interviews that he still wears around the house his playing trousers from Australia A as a pair mm. of kind of tracksuit pants around the, around the house. He wears them as kind of like his, his, his comfy trousers when he's on the couch. So um, I wonder if we can combine <laughs> Joe Angel's helmet with Greg Rowe's yeah. Australia A trousers. I mean, that would, I mean, wow. know, let, let's, let's dare to dream. Very, you, you want to get into Greg Rowe's pants, that's what you're telling me. <laughs> um, so, so, Rob, I'm still working on your number, by the way, your, um, your, your revisit number. It, it will come up in shows to come still chipping away at that one and our last email in uh, Jeff is in relation to the Hone Tafare poem that you read out last week uh, Tanya Wintringham and Sarah Berman and a few others wanted to bring to my attention that the 90 Mile Beach definitely refers to New Zealand uh, not not Gippsland, where I spent some time um, <laughs> uh, as a kid uh, in the uh, in my grandparents' holiday shack. So Al says here he wanted to jump on as soon as he heard Jeff's excellent reading of that poem. Uh, he's a national treasure, uh, but I hadn't heard that one before. You'll no doubt hear from every Kiwi who listens that the 90 Mile Beach is in the west coast of Northland, up past Auckland. Jerusalem is a tiny settlement on the mighty Fanganui River in the central North Island where James K. Baxter, another great New Zealand poet, saw out his days. The poem's about Tafari's drive from Northland to Baxter's funeral, Tangi, in the early 1970s. If you want to check out some Baxter, Ode to Mixed Flatting is a hoot. High country weather is powerful and short and the ballad of Calvary Street is a bit grim. So one for the, the poets uh, among our 
Final word, listenership, of which, Jeff, you are one. Yep. Hone Tufare, it's spelled H-O-N-E, his first name. Uh, so if you want to uh, punch him into your internet uh, and look him up, there's some great stuff out there to read. I've got his uh, collected works, which is uh, something I've been very much enjoying reading through. I think that's it for the show today. This has been Storytime on The Final Word. Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins have been your company. Uh, thanks to all of the patron people. Uh, unbelievably, people want to support this show which still surprises us all the time but it's something we feel very glad about that we get to actually make this work and we get to make this our work and we get to spend several days in the week preparing this show and uh, organizing it researching it planning it recording it and putting it out there and that it makes people happy it's a really nice thing to be involved with so thanks to everyone who's on the patron and can support the show uh, and anyone who can't that is entirely fine we're very happy to have you listening along as well you can always leave us a rating or a review or pass the show on to friends or other like-minded folk if you want to do that as well we'll be back with the weekly show as of next wednesday we'll have some short daily shows after each day of the england new zealand test match uh, they'll be going up on YouTube and on the podcast feed. Thanks to Woodstock Cricket, who sponsor the show. You can get discounted kit using the notes in uh, the discount code in the show notes. And uh, the show is on Bad Producer Podcast Network with other programs of theirs, edited by Dave Collins. And I believe that is all for this week. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about-